Dear God, we come to you this morning uh, with our hearts open to you and open to your word. We ask, Lord, that as we read through these passages, as we flip through your inerrant and inspired word, God, that you will reveal to us the things that we need to see. That we will not leave this congregation the same way we came in, but we will have a radically different approach to doing the work of the ministry together as one body. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, uh, let's say our corporate prayer together, the Lord's Prayer, and then we will begin this reading. So, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, before we start, let's just read this passage and then we'll go from there. So Matthew chapter 16, reading verses 13 through 20. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version as I am often likely to do. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do you say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, this passage is one that I have been reading over and over again for a few weeks, preparing my heart for this one. Uh, The reason why is because there's two camps on this passage. We have one camp who believes firmly that this means that Peter is the first pope, right? Right? And because of that, all of apostolic secession is built upon that. Then there's the other camp who goes so far on the other end to say, no, that's not how that works, that they go kind of outside of the text to justify it. And so today, I'm going to stand in a middle ground, a central ground, a ground that I think is biblical, is the right way to look at this passage. Um, And it's important because how we get this passage helps us understand how the church is formed. Without this, we don't see how the church comes together as one body. And so, let's go line by line and just kind of break this down. The first line says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? So anytime a location is given, it's kind of important. It's important for us to pay attention to that location and kind of know a little bit about it, right? Um, Any basic study Bible will give you a note about Caesarea Philippi. It'll tell you something like this. It's 120 miles north of Jerusalem or 20 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, right? So Jesus is outside of his Jewish territory. This is incredibly important. 
He's kind of outside of the context of where he was sent to preach, right? He's the furthest north he will go before he starts making his way back to Jerusalem. And so here in this particular city, there's something we need to know. It's pagan. Pagan, yeah. Caesarea Philippi was known first and foremost as being the worship place for Baal Hermon. Uh, There are several Baals in the Old Testament, right? Several. There's different ones. Baal Peor, Baal Hermon, there's different ones. They're false gods, right? They're gods that Israel constantly goes after. They assimilate into a culture, and then they start taking that culture's god in with them, right? So that was the first thing that they served in this region, was Baal. And then shortly after, they started worshiping a god named Pan. And Pan is an interesting one. Uh, He is a fauna god, right? Fauna being a deer. Uh, He is the god of nature, right? And eventually, this train of thought would lead into what we now call pantheism, which that is God is in everything. Uh, God is a part of the trees and the leaves and the mushrooms on the ground. And therefore, all things are to be worshipped and enjoyed as if it is God. We call that a heresy in church today because it is a heresy. Uh, There is one God, as we will see in a moment. So first, we've got Baal, then we've got Pan, and then next, we have Caesar himself. The place is named after Caesar. It's been renamed after Caesar. But there's already another Caesarea. So what he's doing is it's named Caesarea Philippi after the Tetrarch's brother-in-law who assimilated it into it. So there's two names because they worship those people. They worship Caesar. They worship him, along with several other gods. And why is this important? Well, because Jesus is about to say something. He's about to ask a question, and there's about to be a proclamation of who he is. Not in front of Jerusalem, not in front of the promised people, but in front of a bunch of pagans. Right? The grand revelation of Jesus being the Christ is revealed not in front of the promised people, but rather in front of people who are so far from God. And it's incredible. Now, before you judge these people and say, oh, well, we're not like them, right? We wouldn't dare worship a, 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 a dear God. Why would we do that? No, we wouldn't do that. <laughs> Let me just point out some of our own false gods in our own country right now. Politics. Yes. Let me be honest with you. If you've got a flag with a president's name on it or a f- potential president's name on it, it might be an idol in your life. going to be completely clear. And I'm not picking sides because they both have it, so that's one way or the other. We'll just say that. Our productivity, that can be an idol. We could so consume our work that our work is what drives us. It becomes our religion. Uh, Our workout abilities can be our religion. Anything and everything that sucks us away from the word of God, from the living, true vine, that is a false religion. It's a dead religion. And I don't mind saying it because I can see it. (laughs) Once you've had something revealed to you, you stand on a hill and you look down at everything and you say, oh my gosh, I was just like that. I, too, fell into this trap of false worship. And so you could say that these people are so far from God, but the reality is is they're actually looking for God. They're just finding him in the wrong place. You see, the difference between them and the Sadducees and the Pharisees is the Sadducees thought they had God. Pharisees thought they had God. They thought they had him. But this group was desperately looking for him. Misplaced, misguided. But you can work with that. And so Jesus says something really incredibly interesting in this passage. 
And once you see this, I'm telling you, it will change the way you read the book of Matthew. It says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now notice God, or Jesus in this particular instance, does not go around saying that he is the Christ, right? We've we've kind of established that. He doesn't go around saying, I am the Christ, I am Jesus, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah. He never says that. Rather, he allows other people to establish that fact. Why doesn't he say that? Well, partially it's coded. It's not his time yet. It's not his time to suffer and be crucified. The other part is, he's actually been saying it all along and nobody was paying attention. He said, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The word man comes from a Hebrew word, Adam, which is Adam. How was Adam made? In the likeness of God. Christ is saying, I am the son of Adam. I am the one who is to come. I'll show you this real fast, and you don't have to flip there. I'll just read it to you. In Genesis chapter 3, as Adam and Eve are getting kicked out of the garden for their sins, for their transgressions, God pronounces a curse on the serpent, right? And he says in verse 15 of chapter 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The offspring of Adam was to be the one to bruise Satan's head. Christ is saying, I am the son of Adam, I am the son of man, the son of Adam, and henceforth, I am the last Adam, the perfected Adam. He was the one who had promised, and he is admitting it right here, but it's coded. And only those who are deeply embedded in his word would ever see it or know it. And that's what comes out today. And so what we see is amidst this Roman idolatry, this paganism, Jesus is displaying himself as the Christ, the anointed one, the one to come. I'm going to give you one more instance of this to kind of make sense. I'm pulling in the Old Testament, going to the New here today. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel gets this amazing vision about the end times, right? He gets this amazing vision. It's got a beast with four heads and ten horns, right? And what is to come, right? And so this is different empires as it is told. It starts in verse 17 of Daniel 7. It says, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. In verse 18 it says, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever Forever and ever. Three three times there. He's saying there's four rulers that will come and take over. Well, what do we know about Jerusalem? Babylon, exiled, one. Persia, Medes, exiled, one. Assyria, exiled, three, right? And where are we at in the timeline now? He's in Roman territory and Roman occupation, four. So Jesus, the son of Adam, is here now, right? And he's ready to conquer that fourth kingdom. It says in verse 27 of Daniel 7, And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. He's here establishing his kingdom. He is ready to break that fourth wall and carry through. As I mentioned several weeks ago, when Jesus uh, ascends into heaven, and this is where we started our look at Matthew, in Matthew 28, 
He says, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Before that, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Keyword all. And so he is here to establish that rule and reign now. In the midst of Paganville. How beautiful, right? Planting it right in Paganville. And so then it transitions. They answer. The, the, the disciples answer the question. It says, and they said, some say that you are John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So what we see here is that they see Jesus as a prophet, but not the Messiah, right? Now, you could assume that we're talking about the people of Caesarea Philippi, but in reality, we're talking about everybody up until this point. We're talking about the Jewish people, right? They, they see him as a prophet. They do not see him as the Christ. So let's run down this list here. We have John the Baptist first. As we know, he's the most recent. Jesus said he's the greatest of all, right? He's the greatest. He just got beheaded. So some say, oh, maybe, maybe he's actually John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, the one who rode off in a chariot of fire and was predicted to come back. Hey, that's a good one. That's a good pick. Others, Jeremiah. That's an odd one. He was the, the prophet of doom. <laughs> doom and destruction. Who predicted the exile. Who predicted the destruction of the temple. Who predicted... The, the lamenting that would happen because of it. Uh, he's Jer Jeremiah. That's kind of extreme. That's an interesting one there. And then, in a vague sort of term, or one of the prophets. Eh, pick one. I don't know. Could be Malachi. Could be Micah. I don't know. But he's not the Christ. That's what they're saying. <laughs> he is definitively not him. No way. He can't be the promised one, but he can be a prophet. That's cool. And Jesus is unimpressed by this answer, of course. So he says to them, right? He is now speaking to the disciples, the 12 that we have together. He says to them, but who do you say that I am? Right? Like, I don't care what these other people think that I am. You are the 12 that I've been walking around with day in and day out. You've seen me feed 5,000. You've seen me feed 4,000. You've seen me walk on the water. You've seen me heal people. You've seen me bring people back to life. Who, who do you say I am? Because if you only say I'm a prophet, then, then, well, something's wrong, right? And what we should know from the past couple weeks is they've gotten closer and closer and closer to this revelation, right? Peter saw Jesus walking in the water, comes out, Jesus rescues him, and they say, truly, he's the son of God. Okay, they're halfway there. Last week, the Syrophoenician woman says, Jesus, son of David, right? We're starting to call him by these proper names. And now here, Jesus asks, who do you say that I am. And Simon Peter replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the answer we've been looking for. That's the answer we need. He's not some prophet. He's the Christ. He's not just a prophet. He's a priest. He's a king. He's the last Adam. He's the one who will crush the head of the serpent. That's who he is. Thank you, Peter, for getting it right, buddy. And so what we have to understand first and foremost here is in the way that it is said, you are the Christ emphatically, the son of the living God. Peter is proclaiming this amongst his peers and amongst anyone else who can hear it. What do we establish about Caesarea Philippi? They're a place that loves other gods, right? They love other gods. They'll worship anything and everything that moves at this point. 
And he says definitively, you are the Christ. Christos is the Greek word, which means the anointed one, the one to come, the Messiah. You are the one, first and foremost. Then the son of the living God. These other gods are dead. Your Baal is dead. Your God of work is dead. What will it get you in the long run? Your God of religion is dead. Your God of politics is dead. This is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so what Peter is doing is exactly what it tells us to do in Romans 10, 9 and 13. Many of you will know this passage because it's our sort of oversimplification of how to be saved, right? In Romans 10, verse 9 through 13, it says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. Bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And here's the kicker. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter is doing exactly that. He is proclaiming not that this is a prophet, but this is the Lord God, the one who we serve amidst all these other individuals who probably disagree with him. It's a public proclamation. He is preaching. That's what he's doing. He's preaching. And in verse 17, Jesus responds with, quite honestly, one of the best responses anyone can hope for. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter is blessed because God has revealed this to him. Which brings me to my first point. I know it took a while to get here. Faith in Christ is not inherited, people. It's revealed. It says so right there. You see, the problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees is they were going off on the assumption that because they were sons of Abraham, that they would be saved. The same for us. We can go off on the assumption that because our parents were in church or our grandparents were in church, that we are saved. We can even go on the assumption that because we sit in a pew we are saved. We can go off on that assumption that because we are here and present, that we've inherited it from our fathers, that somehow we are saved. But Jesus debunks that. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, his actual name. He doesn't call him Peter. This is interesting. Why? All right? Why? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. That's what Bar means. He says, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Guess what? Your dad failed you. (laughs) High five. He may have raised you well. He may have taught you how to fish, but he didn't give you faith, buddy. Uh, He failed. (laughs) But that's okay. That's the distinction. That's okay, right? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, he is the one who has revealed this to you. 
He is the one who has showed you who I am. He is the one who, through these process of miraculous events, has revealed that I am not just a prophet speaking beautiful words, but that I am the Son of God, that I am the Christ, the one of the living. To back this up a little bit, in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist makes a claim that is incredibly, incredibly important. And I mentioned this at the beginning of the year when we were looking at this. But in John chap- Matthew chapter 3, sorry, my apologies, in verses 7 through 10, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come out to John the Baptist to be baptized, right? And he says something to them that I'm sure upset them. It says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Did you catch that? Do not presume to say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. People, do not presume to yourself that because your family has inherited this Christianity that you are saved. That is not how that works. It's not how it works at all. God is able to build up from these stones, sons of Abraham. Whatever, man. Like John downplays them all together. The reality is our religion is not inherited. It is revealed. Right? It is, it is revealed. And we'll see how that comes out in a moment. But I'll tell you this. I'll give you a hint. Right? When we draw near, he reveals. What did Peter do? Peter left everything he had and followed Jesus. Followed him around. Chased him out on the water. Right? He, he went everywhere he could with Jesus. They gave up their identities, their lives. They gave up everything for Jesus And as it says in Romans 10, 13, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we can't ride on this inheritance. Instead, we've got to go out on a leap of faith. We've got to say, we give us everything for you. We must call him Lord individually and submit individually. But what Jesus does is so amazing, right? To those who do call on the name of the Lord, to those who have been revealed the mysteries of who Christ is, he gives them a new name and a new identity, just as he does with Peter. Says it in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. If you can read Greek, even in the slightest bit, um, you'll see that Peter is actually not a proper name. It's actually the word rock. It's just Petros, and it just means rock. So what does that say? Uh, And I tell you, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Uh, It says literally, I will tell you, I tell you, you are Petros, and on this Petros I will build my church. You are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. He gives him a new identity. He gives him a new name, right? He's, he's, he's no longer Simon, son of Jonah. He gives him this new inherited identity as the rock. Peter is the rock. And on this rock, he will build his church. 
I could legitimately sit in this passage for a whole time, but I will not do it. Um, but, and I tell you, again, Petros, and on this Petros, I will build my church, which is ecclesia. And this word is not what we think of as church. As we identified earlier, church is not a white building with a steeple that sits on top of a hill, nor is it a uh, cool coffee house where people with tattoos meet on a Sunday. <laughs> The building is not the church. Right? The building is not the church. The ecclesia is an assembly, a gathering of people for one purpose, for, for one call. And he is saying, I will build that on, on you. Right? What's interesting is when you really study that word out pretty intently, he's saying, I will build my body on you. When was the last time you thought about your presence in church as being part of the physical body of Christ? When was the last time? Seriously, when we, we come to church and we have this individualistic idea of church, we come for ourselves, we like the worship, we like to hear the word, but when was the last time you thought of yourself as the body of Christ? Jesus wants to build that. He doesn't want to build walls. He wants to build a body that lives and moves and has his being. That's what he's aiming for. And he tells Peter that he is going to be the first, the first stone in that building. Now, if you're Catholic, I can totally jump on board with the idea that Peter is the first pope. This is where that idea comes from, right? And then the evangelicals would go so far to be like, no, actually what he was saying was that the testimony is what he is built on, and that is, they'll go that far too. Neither one are right. We have to get this perfectly right to understand this. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says to them in verses 24 through 25, at the end of the Beatitudes, and pay close attention to this because this will make sense of this passage so much more. And I know I have you flipping around your Bibles. I don't know how often you flip around your Bibles at home, but here in this church, you will flip around. Yes. <laughs> so Matthew 7, verse 24. <clears throat> this is an incredibly important passage. It says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the... Ah, oh, my goodness, there it is, the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now, in this particular instance, Jesus is talking about himself. He is the bedrock, the foundation. He is our foundation. And anything that gets built on top of that will not fall. He says it in verse 19 there, or verse 18, I'm sorry, where we're at about how the gates of hell will not contain it, right? And so if we go back, let's look at this. I, I want to give you an example, the best earthly example I can possibly think of. When I was a kid, I had um, a Lego thing. I don't know how to explain it. It, had like, it was like a Lego drawer, and inside of it had all my Lego pieces, right? And I loved, I was obsessed with building little houses with all these random pieces that I had collected over over time. Legos were not as cool back then, people, as they are now. I'm just going to say the Millennium Falcon was not a Lego kit. It was not there. <laughs> but, but here's the thing. It had a foundation, right? 
And the idea was that anything that you built on top of that foundation was going to stick to it and wouldn't fall unless, you know, some other, you know, child who was three years younger than you just came and decided to you know, knock it over. <laughs> but my point is, is Christ is like that foundation, right? He's that firm rock, the bedrock that lays below. He is the one that sits. And anything that is built on top of him cannot and will not fall, right? And so Peter is the first stone. He's the first stone placed on this foundation. And if you don't like that interpretation, I'm sorry, but read the book of Acts. The man was the first to proclaim to God to the Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit fell. He was the first to usher in the Gentiles. He was there. He was there at the Jerusalem council. He was the one who healed a blind man. Right? Like, this, is, this is incredibly important. Peter was the first. right? And then it eventually gave way to Paul. And then eventually gave way to other apostles and James and all these other people. And this is how Jesus wants to build his church. He gives us an idea, an identity that is true, that is our own, right? And what we can be sure of is that if we are built on top of that foundation, that word that was given to us by him, the gates of hell cannot stop it. Now that's actually a bad translation, and the ESV is pretty literal, but the word Hades is the proper term here. The gates of Hades. Matthew uses a Greek term, which actually means death. It's not the gates of the fiery pit. The gates of death will not stop it. Death cannot hold you down. Death, where is your sting, right? We will be victorious over death. And why? Because Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And so, my second point is this. The beauty of Christ's body is that it will be built by faithful yet imperfect men. We give pastors such a hard time when they fall, and they fall hard. But we cannot negate the things that they say. If they come and they speak the word of Christ, and Christ crucified, then we are building up the body. Amen. And you'll notice as one falls and comes back, another one takes away, and another one takes away. And just like Peter, we are imperfect. But the beauty is that imperfect vessels make perfect opportunities to proclaim the gospel. Amen. Jesus was out there proclaiming who he was, and nobody gave anything. They didn't care, right? They killed him. But when someone who is so incredibly wretched stands before you and says, you know what? I am a horrible wreck, but I am transformed because of the power of Christ. That is the ultimate testimony. And so the beauty of the ecclesia, the body, is that it is built by faithful men and women who serve throughout. And you see this all throughout the New Testament. They're imperfect, but they are faithful. To give you an example, and I don't want to dig too far into this because this is in the next week or so, literally the next passage, like the next passage, we see Jesus telling his disciples about his death, and Peter's like, surely not you, God. He, he, he rebukes him. And Jesus says to him, what? Get behind me, Satan. So this is the man that he just exalted above all of his fellow friends, and still he has a tragic flaw. But that's the beauty. The beauty is that Christ's body is built by people who are imperfect, yet faithful. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but Jesus gave two parables that talk about how the kingdom of heaven will grow, right? He gave this example to us. In Matthew 13, he says that it's like a mustard seed. It's planted in the ground, right? And what happens is 
It grows to be the tallest tree in the garden. Now, I'm one of those people who thinks that, you know, everything can some way, shape, or form be brought back to the garden of Eden. I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus was saying that his new tree would be the tallest in the garden. He was saying that the seed that he plants with Peter will grow. The kingdom will grow. And it will be the tallest, most beautiful tree in the garden. There were two trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life is the one that is growing. A lot of us want to look at our current context and our current culture and see how evangelical Christianity and seems to be dying down in our country and in Canada and other European nations. And we like to look at that as some form of defeat. But Jesus says, the gates of Hades cannot stop it. Oh, us of little faith. Could it be that he's refining us, that he's purging us, that he's getting rid of our dead weight, that he's getting rid of those birds that like to nest in our trees, as it says in Matthew 13, and he's perfecting us for his arrival. You see, as we might be dying down a little bit, we're going through a new birth. At the same time, too, in other countries, Christianity is exploding. And that was the idea, the kingdom will branch out. It won't stay in one place. It was never intended to be just for the Jewish people. It was intended to be for everyone. Through Abraham, all nations will be blessed. And so the beauty is that Christ's body grows like that tree. And as it grows, it's done by us. So I want you to turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. Because I think the best way to make sense of this passage is to look at Peter's own words. If Peter, right, if, if Peter is the one who is to be exalted, he's the first stone amongst many, then we should look at what Peter has to say. Because Peter has a lot to say. The book of 1 Peter is written to a church who is going through a high level of persecution. There was a time period in church history, in Rome in particular, where Nero was persecuting the Christians pretty hard, not because he had anything in particular against the Christians, but rather because he just picked a group to blame a fire on. You can look this up in history. Uh, but he was burning people at the stake. Uh, it was reported by Josephus that he actually used them uh, as torches for his parties in his garden. He would put people on stakes and light them on fire. So if you think that you're persecuted, think again. If Peter wrote this letter to those churches who were dispersed, they were driven out into exile because of these things that were happening. And he wrote it as an encouragement to tell them to keep to the faith, right? And to ultimately do what they were commissioned to do. And so 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. There we have that, that analogy of the stone again, the rock. So as you come to Jesus... Not a dead stone, but a living stone. He was rejected by men in the sight of God, but he was chosen and precious. And then what he says is he turns it on to the church, which we read for us today. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. 
to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, and this is, if you want to highlight something, highlight this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. To make sense of this, Peter is saying to that church and to us, we read this as what we call the Catholic epistles, the universal epistles. He is saying that you, like me, are a stone. Not a dead one, you're a living one. Right? You're powered by that living foundation that is the rock, right? And you yourselves are a spiritual house. You are to be a holy priesthood. Right? You're to be a holy priesthood. You're not meant to be mere spectators in a show. You are to be a holy priesthood. What do we know about priests from the Old Testament? Well, they did several things. They offered sacrifices to God. Right? On behalf of the people, on behalf of themselves. They kept the temple pure. They had to clean out the garbage and kick the things out from there. And then they read the word. They were those who proclaimed, right? And so if we, like Peter, are living stones, right? He's that first Lego block on this giant building that Christ is building. Then that means that we too, like Peter, must proclaim Christ. It says it here in verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He owns you. He's possessed you. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. That is amazing. All of us in some capacity were at one time in darkness, in total darkness. See, life without Christ is death. It leads to death. He is the living stone. When we are cut off from the living stone, we are dying. But when we have been built on the living stone, we are no longer dying, we are being sanctified. And because of that, he's called us out of our darkness into marvelous light, and that is what we are to proclaim. That's what Peter's doing here in this particular passage. He's amongst all these pagans, all these idols, even amongst his fellow friends who are disciples, and he is proclaiming that Christ is what? The the Lord, Son of God, Son of the living God. He is the Christ, the Christos, the Savior. And now he's telling us that we're supposed to do that too. And so you might say to yourself, man, wow, okay, that's intense. Um, Pastor, I am not Peter, right? I'm not Peter. (laughs) And that is true. You are not Peter. 
You're not Peter, but you still are a rock. You are still a piece of the puzzle that gets put together. Peter's no longer with us. He's waiting for us, right? He's waiting for us, and so it's our job now to carry on that flame, just as it was John's and Mark's and later on Augustine and Irenaeus and later on Calvin and Luther and all these individuals. It's our job and our duty to continue to proclaim the gospel. Everyone. Everyone. You see, you hold something unique. You hold something unique in you that makes you perfectly fit to proclaim the gospel within your context. For instance, I'm going to call out names. Miss D, I love you. I've got to call you out. If I were to walk into your store and start proclaiming the gospel, people would think I was a loony person. But if you were to proclaim the gospel, it would mean something coming from that context. Marianne, the same. In the salon, you have a context. You have a platform in which you can proclaim the gospel. You can do it in your own way. Vicky, the same with you. Dana, the same with you. It doesn't matter who you are, what identity you are. You don't have to stand here on a Sunday. You can proclaim it loud and proud where you are. And you see, Jesus, interestingly enough, has equipped us. In verse 19 it says, He will give us the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever we bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, I've heard this passage butchered, so I made sure that I studied up on this one. (laughs) The keys, as we established several weeks ago, was the word of God. I mean, that's it. That's the key to the kingdom of heaven, right? But what he's saying specifically to Peter is that you will be the gatekeeper by which people come in and go out, right? In which people are allowed in. What you bind in heaven will be bound on earth, right? What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He's saying what you proclaim to people will allow those people to come in. If you hold back, you're holding back the potential of other people coming into the kingdom of heaven. You have been given the keys. It sits here in the word of God. It sits here with you. You've been given the keys, the knowledge to present Christ properly. Peter was anointed, right? Here at this point, he was blessed. And because of him and the other apostles who later get the same blessing and the treatment, we have even more instruction on how to take these things out. And so we're not left alone. We have the keys to back us up. So what do we know about ourselves so far? We have a new identity. We're we're rocks in God's building, right? We know that ultimately he's called us to be a holy priesthood to proclaim his gospel. And the best part is, that only victory can come from it. The gates of Hades cannot overcome us. And then we know that we've been given the keys to back us up. And so we're not left alone. We have the word of God. We have it with us, right? And interestingly, in verse 20, it says that he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. What? So he, this whole thing has been revealed, and he's like, oh, hush, hush. And why did he do that? In Acts chapter 2, this beautiful thing called the Holy Spirit falls on the day of Pentecost. In John chapter 14, Jesus talks about how when he has left, he will send them this spirit, and it will remind them of all these things they've forgotten. 
And that spirit will empower them to proclaim the gospel. So the keys are his word, and the spirit is our voice. Without it, we do nothing. And so he strictly charged them until all that was accomplished to wait. And they have to wait till he dies. After he's resurrected, they have to wait another 40 days and then another 10 before finally this moment in time comes out. But we are living post-Pentecost, which means if you were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then you have the Holy Spirit in you, which means that you, like Peter, are now empowered to proclaim the gospel. Do you think Peter knew everything at this moment in time? No way, man. He was a fisherman. He was a practical guy. The Holy Spirit is what led him and guided him on his journey. It's what empowered him. It's what gifted him. It's what moved him. It was what was in him and moved and had his being. It's beautiful. And so my last statement here is, as holy priests, we should be using our individual gifts to build up the body, to build up the kingdom. Church should be not full of the same people every week, but new people coming in to serve more and more and more. And so on a practical standpoint, I don't want to leave you here thinking, oh my gosh, I've got to go out and preach a sermon now. I want to give you something that we can look at. And the passage that we read today earlier in Romans 12 is where I would like to land. It says in Romans 12, verses 4 and 8. Well, actually, I'll start in verse 1. This is what we read earlier, so I'm kind of bringing it home on this. In Romans 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore... I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Let that Holy Spirit do the work in you, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And here's where we get into what I want you to pay attention to the most. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. In 1 Corinthians 12, we see other ones. We see faith. We see hospitality. We see service. These things over and over and over again all throughout the New Testament. There are more than just gifts of being a preacher. God has given you something that is unique to you. You see, our body, if we think of Christ, church as a body, is made up of several unique individual parts. And not one of them serves the same function. This hand is different from this hand. This vein is different from this vein. This heart is different from a lung. 
He is our head. He is the center by which all things are sent. But we are all individual members, and no part is lesser than the other. So I'm asking you to find the gift, the grace gift, that was given to you and to use it. That is how the body is built as each individual piece slowly finds its way to its center, it glorifies one whole. And if we are to be the spotless bride of Christ, then it is our duty to make sure that every piece is holy and acceptable before Him. And so you have been given a new name like Peter. You are a rock. You are a holy priesthood. You are a chosen vessel. You are precious to Christ. And you have something incredibly special inside of you. Something that only you possess that gives you the perfect platform to proclaim the mysteries of God. To proclaim to the world that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for revealing to us the mystery of your identity. We thank you for allowing us to see you not simply as a prophet, not simply as a man who performs miracles, but to see you as Christ, the Son of the living God, the one true God, the one who will never let us down, Lord, I ask that everyone here will find who they are in you. That the grace that you have given them will come forth in their vocation. And no matter where you plant them, no matter what context they are in, they will proclaim your mysteries. They will abide in your vine. And in so, they will bear fruit. We give you thanks and glory because you are the one, the true God, the Christ the one who has come to save, the one who has come to redeem, and the one who has come to claim us as his own. In Jesus' name we pray.